Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Welcome to the launch of our The Lord Bless You 28 Days of Blessing series. I'm so excited about the things that I'm going to have the opportunity to share with you over the next few minutes and over the next several weeks. And uh, I'm glad that, that all of you are here to be a part of it. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. Hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. So uh, I want to talk uh, about a really simple subject today. I want to talk about how much God wants to bless you. How much God wants to bless you. Um, let me begin with uh, one of my wonderings. I got to wondering some time ago about why people say bless you when someone around them sneezes. And I wondered why I say bless you when someone around me sneezes. And I discovered that the origin of that is found all the way back in 600 AD. There was a rapid spread of the bubonic plague that was happening. People were falling very ill. Many people were dying. And a sneeze was an obvious and early symptom that someone may be about to fall ill with the plague. And so Pope Gregory the Great issued an edict, and he said, if you hear someone sneeze, if anyone sneezes with an earshot, you are required to say a prayer, and the prayer is, God bless you. The Lord bless you, which has come to most commonly simply be phrased as, bless you. And it was a prayer that someone would not fall ill. It was a prayer that if someone was ill, that they'd be restored to good health. I like the idea that when a person manifests the symptoms of a sickness, that those around them offer a prayer. The Lord bless you. May God deliver you from sickness and restore you to good health. Now, odd as it may seem, bless you captures the heart of God for people in ways large and small since the very beginning. The very first description of God's interaction with the people he created is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, an incredibly important passage where we're told God blessed them. God created the man and woman in his image, and then he blessed them. And then, as we'll discuss in upcoming weeks, he purposed them. He told them what he made them to do. Genesis chapter 127 and verse 28 go like this. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. It is impossible to overstate how important this is. God's very first interaction with human beings is described in the language of blessing. God bless them. 
I like to imagine God standing in the garden with the first man and woman newly made in his image and passionately declaring his love for them, telling them how much he valued them and wanted to be in relationship with them and to have them partner with him in his work. I think he swore to them that he would do good to them and promised that he would help them do good in this world. God blessed them. But then, of course, there's another part of the story, and the other part of the story is the man and woman sneezed. They fell sick. They fell very, very sick. I'm talking, of course, about what we call the fall. God gave Adam and Eve the choice as to whether or not to live life the way he designed it to be lived or to live life their own way, and they chose to live life their own way. And because they did, the plague of sin infected the human race. Now, though humanity would still know good and have great capacity for good, they would also know evil and have great capacity for evil. Now, because of their own choice, they would not only experience blessing, they would also experience the curse. Simply put, the curse is to live outside of the way God designed life to be lived, and the blessing that God gave to humanity in the very beginning. But I love to think about the fact that before the man and woman sneezed, God blessed them. He knew that they were going to make the choice they made. He knew they would fall sick. He knew they would be plagued by sin. But even knowing that, Before they sneezed, God said, I bless you. And what's so fundamentally important about this is is really a way to look at all of life and God's relationship with the people he made. Blessing is what God wanted in the beginning. Blessing is what God's determined to have in the end, which informs the way we should think about life now. Blessing is what God wants us to have now. So, as I've said many times, and by the way, particularly today, less so in coming weeks, but particularly today, I will say some things that those of you have heard me teach many times, have heard me say, because I'm kind of talking about uh, some uh, foundational truths in terms of how I see Scripture and what I think God's up to throughout history and how this impacts our lives. And so uh, I'm going to talk about some kind of foundational things, and if you think you've heard me say a few of the things I say, like what I'm about to say, it's probably because you did, okay? Okay, there are everything in history, everything in history is a response to the first three chapters of Genesis. Everything in history is a response to the first three chapters of Genesis. And though there's a lot to be said about the first three chapters of Genesis, there are three fundamentally important things that God tells us about himself and people and the world in the first three chapters of Genesis. And and treated briefly, here they are. First of all, in the creation narrative, we learn what God wanted and still wants. How important is it to have a sense of what God wanted when he created the world and put people in it? 
The creation narrative tells us what God wanted and still wants. And what he wants is a relationship with men and women whom he can bless and who will join him in his work. And he wants a world that looks and functions like Eden. I will come back to this theme again and again, Lord willing, in coming weeks. What does he want the world to look like? Look at Eden. He wants people to be in harmonious relationship with him. He wants people to partner with him in doing his work. This is what was going on in Eden. We're told that they worked and cared about the things God worked and cared about. He wants people to be in authentic unashamed relationship with one another. He wants there to be an abundance of everything needed for people to live the truly good life. This is some of what we know was going on in Eden. That's what God wanted, and that's still what God wants. Secondly, we learn how that through the fall, God allowed humanity to decide whether or not they wanted what God wanted. And they said, no. And the sickness of sin and the curse have plagued this planet and the human race ever since. Thirdly, we then see how that God stood in the garden and looked at the now newly cursed man and woman, the newly plagued, the fallen sick man and woman, and he offered what I like to call the Arnold Schwarzenegger prophecy. God stood there and said, I'll be back. Theologians call it the proto-evangel, if that makes you feel good. In other words, God stood there right after humanity fell and said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to lift you back up. I'm going to come back and undo the damage that has been done here. Someday, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, God said, to sum it up, a man will come from this woman and undo the damage that has been done here. He was speaking, of course, about the fact that Jesus... Jesus Christ would show up at the right time in history and do what needed to be done to redeem humanity from the curse and to bring what God wanted back, God's full blessing. And Jesus came and he did what needed to be done to accomplish that through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Here's part of what I think of when I look at that. Before humanity even fell sick, God had prepared the cure. Before the foundation of the world, God knowing that Adam and Eve would sneeze and fall ill and be cursed and not live in God's full blessing, God had planned for Jesus to come and to undo the terrible thing that had happened through the fall. Now, with all of that, here's, an, here's another really big idea. Guys, this is as important as anything that I could ever say to you. It's a simple concept, but it's a concept a lot of people and a lot of Christians particularly miss. God will have in the end what he wanted in the beginning. And he will accomplish it through the work of Jesus Christ. Everything in history is about this. Again, I've said it many times, when humanity fall, God didn't change his mind. He didn't develop 
you know, some new project for humanity. Everything in history became about God getting back what he wanted in the beginning, which is how we're told in Scripture history as we understand it ends. The very first chapter of Genesis, we're told God blessed them and so on. And then they experienced the curse because of sin. The very last chapter of Scripture is Revelation chapter 22. And in Revelation chapter 22, we're given a picture of how this age ends and the new age begins, where those who have believed in Jesus are living in a renewed heaven and earth in a garden city that is a restoration of Eden to this planet. Now, it's a garden city because there are going to be so many people in it. It's not just a garden with two people. It's a garden city. There will be countless hundreds of millions, hopefully billions of people in this garden city. And Revelation 22.3 says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve them. Meaning that in the last chapter of Scripture, God has what he wanted in the first chapter of Scripture. Men and women created in his image whom he can bless and who will fulfill their God-designed purposes. Of course there will be no curse. Why? Because God wanted only blessing in the beginning and God will have only blessing in the end. So you may say, okay, maybe that's what God wanted in the beginning and maybe that's what God wanted in the end. It's kind of an interesting theory perhaps, but what in the world does that have to do with me now? To which I say, first of all, that's a great question, but secondly, it has everything to do with you now. See, God, what God wanted in the beginning and what God is going to have in the end is an indication of what our lives should look like now. Yes, we live in a world that's still sick, but through Jesus, we can live in God's blessing now. See, what, what Adam messed up, Jesus has already put back together. And though we won't see what Jesus did and is doing fully manifest until the age to come, we can experience the reality and power of this now. Here's just one example of many I could share to you from Scripture that bears this out. This is the kind of thing I think people too often miss when they're thinking about what's going on with God and people and what's happening in the world now. Here's Paul writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. And he's saying a lot of amazing things here, and we'll actually read earlier, uh, uh, from earlier in this chapter here in a few moments, but he's summing up a big thought he's making by saying this. He says, for if by the trespass of the one man, he's writing here about the first Adam who through his sneeze caused the entire human race to be plagued, okay? He says, so if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned, the plague reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's making the point here that the first Adam messed things up, but in this text, he calls Jesus the second Adam who came to put things together. And he says, if we know this, then why shouldn't we expect to reign, not in some future reality alone, though that certainly will happen, but why can't we expect to reign in life now? 
See, some of us seem to have more faith in Adam's sin than we have in the second Adam's provision to defeat sin. And some of us seem to have more faith in in the realities of the messed up world than we have to do with the fact that through Jesus we can experience some of Eden even in the midst of the wilderness. The fact is that what Jesus did through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation is infinitely more powerful than the mistake that Adam made. Jesus came to bring back what Adam lost and a big part of that can be described in terms of blessing. So to live in the blessing that God wanted for us then in the beginning doesn't mean that life is perfect. Our Eden is happening in the context of a wilderness reality. We're broken people in a broken world. But the more we know Jesus and the more we become like Jesus, the more we live like the Adam who had a relationship with God before the curse, the more we become like the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who undoes the damage that Adam did. The more we submit to God's rule in our lives, participate in his kingdom, the more we reign in life through Jesus Christ now. Again, we're not going to experience the totality of this until the age to come, but we can taste it now until we can live a life that constantly looks less like wilderness and more like Eden. It looks less like curse and more like blessing. It looks less like what Adam messed up and more like what Jesus is putting together. This is part of what happens as we're growing in our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our lives look more and more the way God wanted human life to be in the beginning. And what does that look like? Well, when Adam and Eve were, were cast out of the garden, they were cast into the wilderness. There can be beauty in the wilderness. The problem is, is whereas in Eden there was only beauty and nothing ugly, now in the wilderness there's beauty and ugly. Where in Eden there was only good and the ability to choose between good and evil, which creates this whole new reality. Now in the wilderness there's good and there's evil. Human beings are, are still are created in the image of God, even though the God image is damaged. Human beings have great capacity for good. The problem is we also have great capacity for evil evil. The wilderness is, is an unknown. The wilderness is, is a chaos. The wilderness is, is, is in many ways savage. We feel the wilderness reality in this plagued world that we live in. But through Jesus now, there, there begins to be a restoration of Eden to the realities of our everyday lives, where more and more we experience harmonious relationship with God. More and more we experience harmonious relationship with others. More and more we have the things we need in our lives to live the life God dreamed for us. Our lives are in this, listen, all of history is experiencing a gravitational pull from Eden forward to Eden future. It is an inevitable reality. It is coming to pass. And I'll tell you that as we believe in Jesus, our lives as individuals will experience more and more of that gravitational pull as well. As you walk with Jesus, you're going to find yourself living more Eden, less wilderness. In fact, if you would just say it with me, say more Eden less wilderness. (laughs) 
There is a world of blessing that is ours through Jesus Christ. A world of blessing that is ours through Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ. See, we can learn to appropriate those blessings. We can bring them out of the world of spirit possibility into the world of the physical and the practical and lived. We can experience these blessings now. So, over the next five weeks, by God's grace, we are going, those of you who will join with me in this, to immerse ourselves in what it looks like to live in God's blessings, what it looks like for our life to be more Eden, less wilderness. We're going to do that through our series. The next five Sundays, we're going to be teaching through various themes as it concerns blessing in alignment with my new book that was released this week, The Lord Bless You. And I want to challenge each of you, if I may, to give it five weeks. What would happen if you would make the commitment to show up every Sunday for five weeks, and if something happens to keep you from being here like you break both legs and have a headache at the same time, then you could watch it online. But um, five, what would happen if you'd say, for five weeks, I'm going to keep showing up and see what God does in my life? And then we're encouraging everybody to read a daily reading from the Lord bless you each day over the next 28 days. And this book, The Lord Bless You, um, is, um, is organized into four weeks or four sections and seven daily readings in each week or section, which of course adds up to 28 days. And the truth is that my publisher did an amazing job designing this in a way where people could easily digest some very substantive theology around blessing and apply it into the practicalities of their life. In fact, I was, I was, uh, I'm doing at this point a lot of podcast and radio interviews and all of that around the le release of the book. And I was on a podcast from New Zealand actually that is a podcast centered on theology, and the guy called this, this devotional book a theology of blessing. And I, I thought that was really a, a wonderful and true description of what this book is. Um, and, you know, I've got people like Kathy Lee Gifford endorsing it and saying that this book brought her great joy, and that is my hope for you, that this book will bring you great joy. I'd love for you to hear the messages on Sunday. I'd love for you to dig in all week. I'd love for you to either lead or join a book club. Someone was signing books earlier today. Someone, I think, bought 20 books. I signed 20 books. Uh, my right shoulder is really sore, actually. Signed 20 books for one person who was buying this for a group of people she's going to be inviting to her book club. And that's the kind of vision that I hope that people will have. We've had, and then we're, we're, so we'd love for you to either lead a book club, which there's something on the connection card you can tell us if you'd like to do that, or be a part of a book club where you're talking about this subject with other people every week. What are we trying to do? We're trying to immerse ourselves in this truth. And then for all of you who feel called to and have the capacity to, I hope that you not only will buy 
a, a copy of the book for yourself, but that you will also buy at least another copy to give away. The book was designed by the publisher to, to be a, an easily giftable book. And it's a beautiful book to hand to somebody. And I mean, the title's The Lord Bless You. I mean, you're, you're saying something pretty affirmative to another human being when you're giving them a book about how much God wants to bless them. And we've priced all of this. I won't get into the details of this to where it, it, hopefully you're incentivized to buy at least two copies. And then I can't believe actually how many people since the book launch Wednesday night where we had a big book release event here have been purchasing bundles of 10 and just telling me names of people that they have on their heart, that they want to share the good news about Jesus and the message that we teach here at the Life Christian Church with and say, you know, I'm going to, they, they have all these names in their head. You might be thinking about that. I'd love to sign those books. I'd love for you to take them. I'd love for you to give them away. What a blessing. What an opportunity we have. And by the way, uh, all the proceeds this week uh, in this book launch uh, are being donated back to our Christmas missions offering by the author. I'm the author. And so it's not coming to me. It's all going to end up coming back to help us fulfill our mission here at the Life Christian Church. I want to get this message of blessing in as many people's hands as possible. So... And then I'll just say one other thing, one other thing, and that is that, that some of you know, many of you probably don't, there are churches all over the country today who are launching the Lord Bless You series and 28 Days of Blessing who uh, have bought my book. They're taking the sermon I'm preaching today. They're preaching it in their churches all over the country. I got a text from a pastor this week, you know, just encouraging me as we were uh, having a little bit of a challenging week around some things, encouraging me and saying, you know, Thousands of people all over the country are going to be experiencing God's blessing this week because of what you guys are doing at the Life Christian Church. And so that's just exciting for all of us to be a part of. Now here's the thing that's so incredibly wonderful. Some scholars believe that blessing is the theme of Scripture. Interesting way to look at life. That everything in the Bible is ultimately about the kind of relationship God wants to have with people like you and me. How much he wants to bless us. There are over 500 scriptures in the Bible that speak of blessing. If you live every day with the expectations God wants to bless you, it will impact everything about your life. God wants to bless you. You remember the myth uh, the, about King Midas who, who, who prayed a prayer to some uh, uh, god or goddesses, small g's, uh, and emphasis on the word myth, that everything he touched would be turned into gold. I like that picture, though, of everything he touches turned to gold. Didn't end up well for him, but everything he touched, gold, gold, gold. Well, when you live a blessed life, everything you touch turns into blessing. Everything you touch turns into blessing. And again and again in Scripture, we get indications of how much God wants this for us, this overwhelming, pouring out of us, everything around us, blessed reality. For instance, it's an Old Testament passage, but it captures God's heart throughout Scripture. God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel 
that if they would walk with him, that, this is what God said, all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you. You will be blessed wherever you live. You will be blessed wherever you go. Your children will be blessed. Your business will be blessed. Your finances will be blessed. Your ministry will be blessed. You will be blessed in everything you put your hand to. People, even your enemies, will see that you are blessed and reverence God and respect you. And the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity and open the heavens to bless all the work of your hands according to some renderings of this passage blessings will find you blessings will overtake you blessings will chase you down by the time we finish today and over the next five weeks we're going to believe at the depth of our being god wants to bless us and we're going to see these blessings pouring into and from our lives now let me spend the rest of my time today talking about teaching about Two, God wants to bless you insights. Two, God wants to bless you insights. Here's the first one. To be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God who wants to do good in us, to us, and through us. This is our working definition of what it means to be blessed that we're going to work from over the next several weeks. Now, as you might imagine over the last couple of years i've done an immense amount of study about this subject and uh, i've studied uh, uh, I, th I think i've read every scripture in the bible that has something to do with blessing uh, and i've studied a number of scholars on this subject and i like the how there is a similarity in how bible scholars define blessing I, i'll read you three definitions i like from uh, s several highly respected scholars tripper longman said god's blessing on people involves his positive regard for them the desire to see that they enjoy the truly good things in life John Walton, in his commentary on Genesis, wrote, Blessing has to do with being in favor with God and under his protection and care. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller defined blessing as multidimensional flourishing, physically, socially, spiritually. And I like all of those definitions of blessing. But having studied it through Scripture and having studied numbers of scholars on the subject, the definition of blessing that I think best represents my view of it in Scripture is that to be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God who wants to do good in us, to us, and through us. So let's dig into this definition for a few minutes. So first, to be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God. Without question, the most fundamentally important part of Adam and Eve being blessed in the garden was the relationship they had with God. God was fully present in their lives, and they walked and talked with God in the garden. Sin, of course, messed up this harmonious relationship, but... Jesus, Scripture clearly tells us, brought this back, made it possible again for those of us who believe in him. I love this passage in Romans, Romans 5 again, that describes what our lives can be like now. Listen to how glorious the writing of the Apostle Paul is here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He writes, since we have been made right with God by our faith, we have peace with God, this happened through our Lord Jesus Christ, who through our faith has brought us into that blessing of God's grace that we now enjoy 
And we are happy because of the hope we have of sharing in God's glory. Let's talk about the passage just for a moment. When he talks about being happy because of the hope we have of sharing in God's glory, God's glory has to do with who he is and what he does. So we're happy when we think about being a part of God's life and God's work now and forever. So let's back up. He says we've been made right with God through our faith in Jesus, and consequently we have peace with God. As I've taught many times here, an incredibly important foundational truth, the word peace here is not primarily about the absence of conflict. It's about this Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom has to do with everything in life working the way it was meant to work. It has to do with flourishing. It has to do with harmonious lives. It has to do with life in all of its fullness. So the Apostle Paul says, because of what Jesus has done and through our faith in Jesus, we've now been restored to right relationship with God and and we therefore have shalom. There should be an expectation that because we're in harmonious relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that things are beginning to work in our life the way God meant for them to work in the beginning. Salvation is a restoration to Eden. That's primarily a spiritual reality, but it spills out in our lives now, and it will be a physical, spiritual reality forever in the age to come. But then he talks about this in terms of the blessings of God's grace that we now enjoy. Would you humor me, please, and say, now? The blessings of God's grace that we now enjoy, and then he says, and we are happy. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. What a wonderful thing. I almost feel like Christians need to feel permissioned to just want to be happy. So I don't know why so many sincere people of faith who are trying to do the right thing and please God have this some messed up idea that perhaps God doesn't want us to be happy. But Paul says, because of what Jesus has done and this shalom now working in our lives, we enjoy the blessings of God's grace now and we are, everybody please say happy. We are happy. I love the idea that that, that to be blessed is to live in a condition of true happiness. Now, this is not a circumstantial happiness based on what's happening to us, but a deep contentment that comes from being in a harmonious relationship with a happy God. Do you see God as happy? See, far too many people would answer that question, no, or like you did, uh... And the fact is, it's, again, fundamentally important to understand that God is a happy God. There are great scholars like Jonathan Edwards, for instance, who would say that part of God's entire purpose of creation was to invite human beings, people with free will, to share his happiness, that he was so happy that he created a world in which people could share in his happiness. The scripture repeatedly refers to God in ways that indicate that he is fully and completely happy in himself. The apostle Paul captured God's happy condition, for instance, when he wrote to Timothy, 
and talked about the glory of the blessed God, or another translation says blissful God, or another translation says happy God. See, when somebody says, I am blessed, they are speaking of their state of being. And it's important for us to understand that God is in a happy state of being. As one Bible commentator wrote, to be blessed is to be made happy by God, to which I would say that we are made happy by a happy God. Now, when we're in a happy state of being, it flows into every area of our lives. Blessing brings multiplied blessing. And it's interesting to observe how that happiness overflows and impacts our lives and the lives of those around us. Here's an example. A compilation of nearly every study ever conducted about happiness worldwide, over 200 studies involving 275,000 people, disclosed mind-boggling results. Here's an example. Happiness, the authors of this study wrote, leads to success in nearly every domain, including work, health, friendship, sociability, creativity, and energy. Some of these studies are crazy. One, for instance, reveals that happy doctors make a correct diagnosis much faster and display more creativity and treatments than doctors in a neutral state of mind. I mean, just think about this. If you really study the science of happiness, which is a big thing that's being studied a lot and taught a lot now in universities and by social scientists all over the place, if you really understood the science of happiness then you wouldn't just look at the degrees on your doctor's wall. You'd ask, uh, doctor, are you happy? Because happy doctors make a better diagnosis and are more creative in their treatments. Well, this is true about everybody in every profession when you start looking at this across the board. The Harvard Business Review focused an entire double issue on the economic value of happiness, showing, among other findings, that happy people in business produce higher profits and that there is a correlation, probably causation, between higher happiness levels among citizens in a nation and a higher gross domestic product. Another study detailed how that happy individuals how happy individuals were as college freshmen predicted how high their income was 19 years later, regardless of their initial level of wealth. Here's a bottom line you on this. Study after study divulges that happy people are healthier and live longer, more satisfying lives. Now, this isn't the kind of happiness that we experience because good things happen to us. This is the kind of happiness that creates the conditions for good things to happen. When we are in a happy state of being, happiness overflows into every area of our lives. Now, why in the world should we sit here and expect to be in a happy state of being? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. We have shalom with God. We now enjoy his blessings of grace, and we are happy because of who he is and what he does. Why wouldn't we expect to be the happiest people in the entire world? We are made happy by a happy God. Secondly, to be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God who wants to do good in us. 
He wants to do good in us. Now, sometimes God will do good in us in ways that do not initially feel like he is doing good to us. And this is a theme that we'll pick up in coming weeks. But we must always remember that God is first and foremost about the transformation of our character. He's first and foremost about helping us become less like the first Adam who fell and more like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so when we come into relationship with God, spiritual growth is about, and our next series actually in this trimester is going to be about this, becoming less like the first Adam in the wilderness and more like the second Adam, Jesus, who brings a restoration of Eden. And sometimes Character is transformed in the furnace of difficulty. God allows the challenges of this fallen world to create opportunities for our character to be developed. And so we just need to know that sometimes God is doing good in us in ways that don't necessarily feel like God is doing good to us so that we can become fully actualized like the fully actualized man Jesus Christ was so that we can fully live out God's purposes in our lives. But we just need to know sometimes, you know, uh, God's doing good because he is, his character is good. He can't help but do us good even sometimes when it doesn't necessarily feel like it. We have to have a proper attitude about this. It's like the the two, uh, like the parents who had twin boys. Uh, these twin boys had radically opposite personalities. One was a radical pessimist. One was a radical optimist. It became so serious. The parents were distraught. Took their boys to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist thought that he would try an experiment, so he piled a, a room full of toys all the way to the ceiling. He brought the little pessimist in, and this little boy looked at those toys and burst out into tears. And the psychiatrist said, you know, why? what's wrong? I thought you'd play with the toys. And the little boy said, I'm afraid if I started playing with the toys, I'd just break them. Well, he took the optimistic boy into a room that was piled high with manure, and he he takes the optimistic boy, brings him in this room full of manure, and the little boy starts to laugh, climbs up on top of the pile of manure and starts scooping out scoop after scoop of manure until the doctor stopped him and said, why are you so happy in this room full of manure? And the little boy said, I know, with this much manure, there must be a pony in here somewhere. To which I would simply say that a person who is living in a state of happiness, a person who is in a state of blessing knows that there's always a blessing in there somewhere. You might be facing some things in your life right now that don't feel good, but know because God is good, he is doing good in you. Next, he does good to us. Three, to be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God and wants to do good in us and to us. When you're blessed, a lot of good things will happen to you. Yes, there will be good things happening in you that cause your character to grow, but there will also be lots and lots of good things happening to you. The psalmist wrote, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I just like that word, benefits. It's like blessing comes with a benefits package. Good things happen to blessed people. These benefits are manifest in each of our lives in different ways, but Scripture repeatedly tells us that God not only meets our needs, but even more than that, brings us into abundance. The psalmist said in the 66th Psalm, we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of 
abundance. And then to be blessed is to be in harmonious relationship with God who wants to do good in us, to us, and through us. Part of the happiness of being blessed is that we get to bless others. Remember what God said to Abraham when he made covenant with him. And Abraham is the father of all of us who believe we live in the blessings of Abraham through Jesus. We're told in Galatians in the New Testament, God said to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're going to pick this up next week and the week following how that God not only wants to bless you, but he wants to bless the world through you. You. All right, here's the second of my two God wants to bless you insights. Here's the second one. We'll spend the last few minutes of our, of our time together on this today. It's, here's the point. God wants to bless you, or pardon me, God will bless you because he wants to bless you. I know that may seem like a big duh, but it's not actually how most people think. God is going to bless you because God wants to bless you. Ultimately, blessing is sourced, like everything else in our relationship with God, in grace. It's about a decision God's made. It's about something he wants to do. It's about actions he has taken, through which our only initial proper response is faith. We believe that what God wants to do, he really wants to do and will do in our lives if you'll give him any opportunity at all. I had someone ask me the other day why I thought so many people have a difficult time believing that God is a happy God and that he wants us to share in his happiness. Why do so many people have such a hard time living every day with an expectation that God gets up every day, which he actually doesn't get up, he doesn't sleep or slumber, but if God got up every day, God would get up every day, and the first thing on his agenda, Genesis 1.28, the first thing he wanted for humanity was to bless them. What would it be like for you to wake up every day and just live with this expectation? God wants to bless me today. Why do people not think that way? And my quick uh, answer is that I think that we all have a tendency to default to shame. What I mean by that, of course, is, you know, back to the garden, when Adam and Eve made the choice they made, they became aware of their naked humanity. And for the first time, they felt shame. And when they felt shame, their their instinct was to try to hide from God. Why? They, they had this sense that God was angry, which he was, but the reason he was angry is because he loved them, is because he wanted what was best for them, and because they made a choice that didn't allow him to do that right then. But even then he stood up and said, I'm going to be back and fix all this. So, so, but but they're, they're hiding from God, and they're trying to cover their shame, their nakedness, with fig leaves. You, you, you remember that. I've taught about this recently, actually. They're, 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 they, they, they go get fig leaves to try to cover their shame, while God is doing the kind of thing God always does. He's making a provision to cover their shame so he can have the relationship with them he wanted to have. And so he takes an innocent animal and takes the skin of that innocent animal through that sacrifice, and he covers 
covers the shame of these people so they can stand before him shamelessly, which is how God wants our relationship with him to be. Of course, that was a foreshadowing of what God would do through Jesus Christ when through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sin and shame are covered so that we can stand before God shamelessly and experience the kind of relationship he wants with us, including expecting that God wants to bless us. Well, there's a lot being written about shame today, a lot at, at, at shame being a fundamental problem with people that keeps us from, from what God wants for us. Uh, for instance, Brene Brown, who many of you be familiar with, is a shame researcher who sold millions of books where she essentially says that the primary thing that keeps people from living wholehearted, flourishing lives is shame. Here are a couple of things she's written. She writes, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. The difference between shame and guilt is best understood as the difference between I am bad and I did something bad. See, guilt is a grace from God. We do something we shouldn't do. We should feel guilty, but we have the opportunity then to remedy that through confession, through repentance and turning, through receiving forgiveness. Guilt's good. Shame's bad. Shame says I am a bad, fundamentally bad person. Uh, I've mentioned to you recently how that Jordan Peterson, the clinical psychologist, uh, wrote about how that many people are prescribed medications but don't take them. There's an un unbelievable number of, of, of people statistically who do not take the medications that they have been prescribed that would help them live healthier, longer lives, where on the other hand, if they have a pet to whom medication has been prescribed, they will give their pet the medication the pet needs. Now, a lot of good it does your pet for you to be dead, but that's a whole other subject. And, and he's, he, he goes off on all this. He says, why would somebody take care of their dog and not take care of themselves? And, and Peterson, who the New York Times calls the most important public in, intellectual in the Western world right now, goes back to the Garden of Eden to try to describe how that the root of this issue is shame. And here's what part of what he says, and then there'll be some on the screen. He writes, and so we return to our original query. Why would someone buy prescription medication for his dog and then so carefully administer it when he would not do the same for himself? Now you have the answer, derived from one of the foundational texts of mankind, Genesis, which he spent about five or six pages writing about. Why should anyone take care of anything as naked, ugly, ashamed, frightened, worthless, cowardly, resentful, defensive, and accusatory as a descendant of Adam, even if that thing, that being, is him or herself? And then he says, only you know the full range of your transgressions, insufficiencies, and inadequacies. No one is more familiar than you with all the ways your mind and body are flawed. No one has more reason to hold you in contempt, to see you as pathetic, and by withholding something that might do you good, you can punish yourself for all your failings. A dog, a harmless, innocent, unself-conscious dog, is clearly more deserving than you are you might say to yourself. See, this is the kind of thing I mean when I say we default to shame. Every human being, except the rare narcissist, sometimes stands naked and ashamed before God and asks the question, why would God want to bless me?
But see, he does. And through what Jesus did, he covers our shame. God declared you worthy of his love. You may feel unlovable, but if you feel that way, you are lying to yourself because God said you are worthy of love and that you are so worthy of love that God sent his only son to sacrifice himself so that you could be covered in your shame and so that you could stop hiding from God and instead stand there naked and unashamed and say, God, I believe you love me. I believe you want to bless me. I believe you want me to live a healthy, whole, flourishing life. I believe that you, happy God, want me to be happy. We need to stand shameless before God. Let me finish with this. There are things that we can do and should do to align ourselves with God's intention to bless us. I write about that at some length in The Lord Bless You. But the first thing to do, and the thing that's number one on my agenda today, is believe. As simple as it is, I want you to walk out of here today believing the Word of God, that God wants to bless you. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, but because God wants to. It's this great passage in Isaiah where God's talking through Isaiah about how God's going to come and set everything right in the world. And, and then, and then uh, it's like someone asked the question, well, how's this going to get done? And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Such a simple point. I could talk about it for an hour, but it's such a simple point. It's like, how is this God going to come and make everything right with the world thing going to happen? How's it going to get done? The zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish it. In other words, it's very simple. He wants to. Everything sad is going to come untrue because God wants it to be that way. It's because of grace. It's because of a decision he's made. If you will give him half a chance, he's going to bless you. It's about him. read a story years ago about uh, a couple of dolphins in an aquarium in China who ingested plastic, fell deathly ill. The veterinarians performed several surgeries, couldn't get the plastic out. So somebody got a brilliant idea. They went looking for the person who had the longest arms in the world. And they found this guy, Inner Mongolia, the tallest man in the world, at least at that time, seven foot nine inches tall. His arms, 41.7 inches long. They bring this guy to the aquarium. He sticks his hand through the mouth of the dolphin into its stomach, reaches the plastic, pulls it out, saves its life. Second dolphin, same thing. I got to thinking about, you know, how, how, you know, how are we going to fix this? Well, we're going we're gonna to find the man with the longest arms in the world. And then I thought about something else from Isaiah. It's, it's Isaiah chapter 59 where it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. How can God reach 
into whatever isn't the way it should be in your life and fix it? How can he fix the brokenness? How can he turn the wilderness into Eden? Because he has the longest arms in the world. The zeal of God says, I'm going to reach from heaven through the person of Jesus Christ and show up where you are, and I'm going to touch you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to give you peace. And if you'll let me, I'm going to make you happy. But it's not going to happen because you did anything. It's going to happen because I decided to reach down there. With the saving strength of my right hand, another psalm says, and I'm going to touch your life. And I want each of us to believe that in these coming days and weeks, that God is going to reach from heaven through the person of Jesus Christ and his spirit that is here with us now, and he's going to touch us in ways that cause what he wants to happen in our lives to come true. Would you please stand with me?